You are listening to episode 50 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Well-being is realized in small steps, but is truly no small thing. Zeno of Sidium. That is the opening quote from a recently published book titled Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living in by Kai Whiting and Leonidas Konstantakos. I'm happy to have both of them on Stoicism on Fire today to discuss their book. Gentlemen, I'll let each of you introduce yourself. So my name is Kai Whiting. I'm an academic based at UC Louvain in Belgium, and I'm known for two things. So working with Leonidas is one of them. The other one is to do uh, things to do with environmental action and sustainability policy, that kind of thing. Okay, I'm Leonidas, or Leo, and I'm an international relations theorist at Florida International University. And I'm, my dissertation was on stoicism and just war theory. Excellent. So where did, where for each of you, uh, how and when did you get introduced to Stoicism? Now you go first, because I think chronologically that would be accurate. <laughs> right. Well, I, uh, I first heard about Stoicism in I, I probably middle school. And um, I studied philosophy all through my teenage years, but I found a new uh, love and appreciation for Stoicism, particularly after my tours in Iraq where I've, I used um, Stoicism to kind of get me through some of those experiences. And I um, never looked back since. I did my first master's in them, and I did my PhD in them. Uh, mine was certainly less action, but perhaps no less tragic on a personal note. Really came through for me when I was sitting in a waiting room, hearing whether or not my grandma, or what I would call my nan, had survived or not survived an operation. She did not survive, and I had a stoic influence book. I wouldn't say a book on Sozin, but a stoic influence book on my lap. And I had a choice. I could, I could say, why did she die, and go into a spiral and think about myself, or I could ask myself, in a sense, like, what did that, what did her life mean to me? What is her death going to mean to me? What am I going to do about that? And that was because the book showed me the difference between reality. And what I think about reality and how I feel about it. Because I may not be correct. I might be, but I may not. And then I got to ask myself better questions. So instead of saying, why did she die? And the answer is, because she was ill. <laughs> right? It was, what does this mean to me and what am I going to do about it? That's how I found stoicism. I felt like if stoicism can help me through losing an incredibly important person in my life, then what, what else can it do? So I started to bother people like, Leo asking him, like, what else can Stoicism do for us? If it can help us conquer the fear of death, what else can we do? And what can we do for the community? So that's how it started. So for each of you, it sounds like Stoicism was, as it has been conceived oftentimes in its lineage, a, a philosophy for hard times, you know, when you, when you face trials. So I'm also curious uh, when and where the two of you met and how you decided to co-author a book together. 
well, we never met. We've never met. (laughs) So the answer to that is simple. We have never met. Um, It started with a phone call. So I was sitting at the university on a very, very comfortable white chair. And I thought, I need help. And I only know one person or know of one person I think can help me because he'd written, Leonidas had written a, an article for the Modern Stoicism blog, it might have been called Stoicism Today blog at that time, about should a Stoic care about elephants. So I rang him, well, I didn't ring him, I had to email him because he doesn't really do it. So I was like, can I, can I call you? Like, okay. So I called him, he's like, I, I don't know what you want. I, I can't, get, I don't have money. I'm not, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not this like famous academic. I don't think I have anything to offer you. I don't know. And I was like, you have exactly what I want. And he's like, what's that? I said, you know a lot about stoicism. And he was like, yeah, I can help you. That I can, that I can do. But yeah, it was quite a funny deduction, really. I don't, it's very rare that I would do that, but I was determined. It was like, I must have this man in my life. It's, it's almost romantic in that sense. But it was like, I must have him. He's the guy. He's the only person. I mean, Chris Gill, Christopher Gill was also doing this kind of work. But I was like, he's not going to, I'm not going to have to grab him. And he wasn't so, in a sense, of so contemporary. He was looking at much more the ancient angle. And I was like, what are we doing today? And Leo, for me, was the only person who was looking at that, at that lens. And that led to, hey, let's write a book together. Ooh, that was much later. <laughs> that was much later. So people often say to me, I want to write a book with, say, say yourself, Chris. And you're like, have you even written an email together? Like, if you haven't done that, like writing a book is... A few, you know, a few punches, I would say, sometimes. You get a bloodied nose sometimes because, you know, it hurts when you have to kill your darling. So we started off with academic papers because we felt that the most appropriate thing to do was to get peer-reviewed papers and to see if we were onto something. And not only that, but not, you know, try to invent invent a kind of stirism, quote-unquote. So it's very important for us to get peer-reviewed papers to know, okay, where are the boundaries of where what we would like to add to the contemporary canon if there is such a thing? And where is it that we must be strictly tied to Stoic theory? And you can only do that, in my opinion, if you write peer review papers. So I started there, and then with confidence and mentorship, guidance, conversation with you, Chris, for example, we decided that we could venture out and write a book. But it wasn't like, yes, let's write a book. I, I'm very against as an academic just writing a book on a subject when you haven't had you know, the rigorous academic background. I'm not saying that everybody should do that, but I think if you're an academic worth your sort, that has to be part of the process, and that should not be controversial. Well, let's let's get into the to the book a little bit. Um, first of all, what do you perceive as your target audience for the book? When you had it, when you started writing, you had a, an audience in mind. Who is that? Leo, I don't know. Do you want to start? I mean, you might have a different one. Being being in the U.S., right? Right. Um... This was this was particularly challenging for me, right? Uh, I usually just write about things I, I really care about, and um, that's usually only usually only other Stoics or or, Sto- or Stoic influenced people find that <laughs> find the same things that, that that I care about that they care about, right? But um, the the whole point was that this book wanted wanted to show that Stoicism isn't just about you. 
and or or it's about your place in the it's about your place in the world, right? And I thought I think that that's what we wanted to come through. And Kai was very good at always. Uh, he has this he has a, uh, this this thing called you know mom proofing, right? So it has to be it has to be something that someone re, you know reasonably intelligent that doesn't have a background of stoicism could could read it and get something out of it. And I think that's why this team worked so well together because we were both writing for people that we care about, <laughs> right? But in a way that they could understand it. Yes, the audience was definitely a, a non-academic audience because we'd written for an academic audience. So people, often, we have been criticised publicly and privately, actually, if my emails are anything to go by, that is not academically as rigorous as they would like. I'm like, have you read my papers? And they're like, nope. <laughs> you want my academic rigorous stoic theory? Then go there, right? This was more like... Could, you know, could an intelligent mom or dad or somebody who had, you know, was in the bookshop, just come from their coffee, thinking about how they could improve the world around them? Because I, I think it was also mums, because mums don't tend to think in the sense of, I'm going to just improve me. They might be much like, how can I help my kids? How can I help my husband or potentially their wife? How can I even help the dog have a better life? You know, like mums tend to do that. They, you know, they, even in their bags, they carry wet wipes and almost everything for everybody else. It's like, if a mum could get it, and she could say, I got something out of it and I've become a better person. And that means I have headspace to help others. And that is valued because in other contemporary Stoic books, for want of a better phrase, or at least Stoic influence books, there wasn't that angle. It was like everything is about you. And if not, you're wasting your time. Like it's, a, it's an indifferent. You shouldn't even care about it. So I just corrected someone on Twitter the other day who said, what Stoic principle, you know, primary Stoic principle. If it's beyond your control, don't give a about it. I'm like, your mum's beyond your control. Should you not care about her? So it was kind of correcting some some errors and the kind of things that we spoke about the other day on the Stoic Thailand conversation about the Broics and the Silicon Valley Stoics. And partly that is because we have opened the door inadvertently, I would say, I don't think it's on purpose, to let's throw out the baby with the bathwater and then what else can we throw out? If we can throw out, for example, the Stoic God, what else can we chuck out? So... We waited until chapter eight to mention the Stoic God. Book two seems to though be very much more straight in there with really strong Stoic theory. It's a very theoretical book in comparison, but still mumproof, hopefully, much more challenging to write. But we wanted to take you step by step, and then, you know, in chapter eight, you go, there is a Stoic God here, and this is significant. Okay. You your opening chapter is uh, the promise of the good life. So what is the good life in Stoicism? Leo, I'll let you answer that, as always. <laughs> what, what the good life is in Stoicism, I think has to do mostly with accept, well, there's different phases of it, right? You accept the things that are in your control and what's not in your control, right? And you realize that you have to place happiness in the things that are in your control, right? So what is in your control? Basically, in a word, your character, right? Your beliefs, your judgments, your impressions, just um, your higher order desires, right? These things, these things are in your control. And the problem, the Stoics would say, um, is that we spend so much time worrying about the things that are out of our control and not enough time worrying about the things that are in our control, which is, and that is what makes us truly happy. Nothing else really can, right? Um, not that they don't have any value at all. They just don't have any moral value, like health, wealth, reputation. These things can be used well or they can use badly. If something can be used badly, it, then it can't um, make you truly happy, the Stoics are going to tell us. Happily, the things that are that are in our control are the things that can make us happy. And um, once 
you develop this kind of character. Now, the Stoics never said this was easy. I mean, this is a life's work, of course, right? So, um, but the the point is to develop the kind of character that you 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 can't help but do otherwise, and by t- and but just take those things that are in your control and concentrate on those and make the right judgments about impressions. And that's for the Stoics is a path to happiness, I think, at least as I read the Stoics. All right. Well, that, that ties nicely into the next question I have, which is on uh, on page four, you wrote Stoicism works because it's designed to help us find meaning and take positive action regardless of our circumstances and how we feel about them. Now, I, I love that sentence for a couple of reasons. One, it uh, provides us with the possibility of actually finding meaning, which is something that uh, is questionable in the modern worldview. And it tells us that we can live positively in the world regardless of our circumstances, which again is something that runs counter to what I would call a modern popular culture. Um, we are taught, usually from childhood, that our happiness depends upon our external circumstances. So with that, I've got a couple of questions. What, what change in worldview, beliefs, attitudes, whatever you want to call them, are, are necessary for a person adopting Stoicism to live like that? I think the interesting thing is I've, people will say to me, well, it must to, you know, of course you'd be a Stoic if you're Marcus Aurelius, right? It was so easy to, to be a Stoic. I'm like, it was just as difficult, right? Because being the emperor doesn't mean that you have a good character. And the problem is that with the word happiness in, in the English language sense is that it has different meanings. So I say to people, would you say that a person who is poor and disabled cannot live a life that is worthy of being lived? When I ask it like that, nobody who has criticized us direct for saying, well, actually, of course, it was easier for like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius to find happiness in their palace. <laughs> I'm like, would you say then that a poor person of any ethnicity of your choosing that you seem to feel as a vulnerable group cannot live a life worthy of being lived because of that? And they're like, <clears throat> that, that is what the strikes meant by flourishing. If the minute you cannot tell me that somebody of any, think of any category, right? And you cannot tell me because, you know, oh, a poor person can't possibly live a life worthy of being lived, then that's what the strikes are saying. They're not saying that, that Seneca's life was, wasn't, you know, easier than Cleanthes. They're just saying that just because it was easier didn't mean that he was flourishing. And Chris, I, w- I would add to what um, Kai is saying here by uh, when people, when I've heard this as well, when people say, well, of course it was easy for Marcus Aurelius. Well, it seems to me that they haven't really studied Marcus Aurelius, right? I mean, this is someone, just a, just a brief note, this is someone who like just didn't want, you know, didn't really care about him being emperor. He wanted to read philosophy books all day long, right? But the fact that he was put into this particular time and circumstance, and, and himself, you know, um, constitutively, he was he's quite sickly. He spent his life pro- probably addicted to morphine, right? So, um, or, or opium. And uh, this is someone who had to deal with uh, just challenges in the empire that uh, the other emperors before him didn't really have to go through, including natural disasters, plagues, uh, treason, uh, the, the Germanic uh, in, invasions, right? So this is someone that had to be a Stoic despite the, the what, what his role as emperor called on him to do. And this is someone who, I mean, no, no one 
one is above criticism for this kind of thing, right? But uh, as far as if anybody's been able to do this, it's been Marcus Aurelius, right? No, very true. Very true. And it certainly wasn't easy for Epictetus, as you said, a slave, you know, um, he, he came from a completely, and that's, and I, and I agree with what you're saying, Kai, in the sense that the second you create a philosophy that can't be applied to everyone, it, what value does it have as a philosophy of life? You know, maybe a philosophy for the elites. It may be, you know, you could have a philosophy for the impoverished, but stoicism runs the gamut because it, it's a, it's a philosophy that's irrespective of your circumstances, which uh, begs another question. That is, in modern times, because of these misperceptions, what do you think is the biggest challenge in presenting Stoicism? And you had to face this as authors, I'm sure, to people who live in a world where they're taught that, you know, my uh, my happiness depends on whether I have enough money to live on. Um, and if I'm sick, I can't be happy. And if I have cancer, I can't be happy. And if I'm in prison, I can't be happy. That's what they're taught. How do How do you break through that as a Stoic teacher. I think what I've said about you know if you talk about can your is your life worthy of being lived, because a lot of thing I'm not being funny but a lot of academics like to virtue signal. They like to look like they're saying something progressive in the American use of the term, perhaps not so much in the British sense. It seems to be progressive to point out that somebody who has who is poor has a challenging life. It's like the Stoics are not, I said this yesterday actually on a podcast, the Stoics are not dumb enough to think that a poor person didn't have a challenging life. That's not what they're saying. They're, they knew their life was difficult, but neither are they stupid enough to assume that wealth removes all challenges. And that's the beauty of Stoicism. And people might say, well, what about Marxism? And I think, I'm not saying, I think, you know, contemporary Stoics can learn from some Marxist, Marxist theory. You know, we're not, we're not people who shut our eyes and go, la, 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 I refuse, I refuse to be open to anything. The challenge that I have with Marxism is that it, it's, it basically says that your sense of pleasure, you know, because happiness for them is pleasure. So your, their sense of happiness is completely dependent on the structures above you. And you're stuck in the situation that there's no, there's basically no hope for, you know, unless the utopia arrives. And the Stoics are like, well, that's a miserable life. You know, that, because basically you're saying that you're ex hoping that somebody else will come around and free you, right? You're hoping that the tyrant that's always been there is suddenly going to be nice. <laughs> like, the Stoics were very much more, you know, in Leonidas's language, realists in the sense of going, well, the tyrant is not going to be nice, right? And people say to me, well, so basically you're telling me that if my, your attitude changes, everything gets better. Everything, no, but you're, you know, the way that you respond, if you respond going, okay, I can't, I've gone through all the possibilities, I, I, all the possibilities that I can think of, there's no way to make this tyrant change. Okay, then I'll pick up the, you know, the pot by the other handle. Does that make the tyrant a better human being? No, but it makes your situation more manageable because you're focusing on your character, which as Stoics would say, is the only thing that matters. And Masoni's briefness is clear. If you have a you know, if you have exile and you have death, and the Logos gives you exile, why would you want death? Right? Because you feel like you're gonna die because it's a Roman ideal, you know, ideal state. If if you're if you're poor and there's no way of you to raise, you know, rise up to want wealth, why wouldn't you say, okay, what contentment can I find in my current situation? How can I use or you know the little money I have, or how can I operate optimally? or function the best way I can with the, you know, with no money at all. 
and and knowing that there's a distinction between okay life is really hard and i can still flourish is two different things and it's not a very popular statement to make but i think again academics that have had a middle class to a upper class background always assume that these poor poor people financially are these downtrodden masses that we should somehow you know you know one should rescue i i think i feel quite grateful that I had a very challenging childhood and I was sitting in a bakery once speaking in Spanish and uh, it was like, oh, you're, you were so, don't tell me you were so poor that you couldn't afford Nike trainers, right? And my spouse said to them, no, he was so poor that he couldn't afford food. You couldn't hear a pin drop. And I think that's also been, I've been able to stand up and go, okay, you're going to say that the family that I came from and the things that I've been able to do you're saying that I wouldn't have been able to do that, that I had suddenly had to depend on the crumbs that you were going to throw from your table. And they've been saying things like, so you're saying that everybody can pull themselves up from their bootstraps. Like, bootstraps has nothing to do with it. I'm not saying that I can be a CEO. What I'm saying is I can flourish, that I can make decisions, I can give myself agency. I don't need a middle-class uh, lecturer to tell me how much agency I have. That's up to me. I don't know, Leo, if you want to add to that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, as you said, the uh, Stoics were realist right i i find i find a lot of similarity to some or at least more similarity than people give them credit for between in my field uh international relations theory political realism and the stoics right and again you know bring it back for example to marcus aurelius as someone who acting from within the confines of his own world like okay the uh you know i have to fight i had to fight these the, these germ these germanic tribesmen these invaders but after the threat is neutralized all right come I, i'm simplifying here just a little bit but he but it's basically like okay come inside come be romans you have the same rights and duties as citizens and you can pay taxes just like everybody else so you get what you want but you're going to do it on rome's terms right because that's my own social role as an individual so there is a sense in which uh, for the stoics uh to 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 be an idealist. Uh, look, we save that for Zeno's Republic. Yes, if all men were sages, right, or if all humans were sages, yeah, that's what it would be like. There'd be no temples, there'd be uh, no marriage. Um, now, the, the the world run by uh, run by fools as it is, right? Um, the, the the sorry state of human character that that is in the world. Uh, well, then we have to act from within somewhere. If you're if you're an emperor, that means unfortunately, um, like like Marcus had to see, uh, you know, all these all these severed body parts on the battlefield. Yeah, that's the way it's going to go. That's how your life is going to go. But. What's even more contrary to nature than that is us is us severing ourselves from the whole of humanity, right? So there's a way to be a political realist, uh, as I would say in my field, but also understand that there that primarily there's a moral cosmopolitanism, and once you once you've accepted that, then the Stoics understand that look, um, there's nothing, there's no uh, political system, for example, or economic system that is bad in itself. Right. That's just not. That's not what they attributed goodness or badness to. They attributed good, goodness or badness to individuals. Right. So I think that that's an important part that the, that we're, sometimes we miss from the Stoics is is when we ask, what is the Stoic position on socialism or what is the Stoic position on capitalism? Well, the Stoics would say, well, who is the capitalist? Who is the socialist? Right. And I think that's a when, when, the, for the Stoics saying like. Oh, where you place good goodness and badness, well, that tells me what that person is like. Tell me, tell me what what do they find is good and bad, and then we can go from there. But just like um, the, not every Stoic was against um, 
an emperor, right? Not every Stoic was against the Roman emperor, just like not every Stoic was, uh, was uh, a Republican in the, in the classical sense, right? So it really depended on all these things were being indifferent, but if, if there is uh, human vice, we're going to call it out, whether it be from uh, a republic, right, that the, the people have lost their virtue and now there, there's, uh, it's, there's complete income in, uh, wealth inequality, we're going to call that out. If it's um, a dictatorship and the dictatorship is not following the dictates of natural law, we're going to call that out. So they were realists in that sense, I think, right? Very good. Yeah, that, that is one of the beauties of Stoicism is I think that it, it can apply to a variety of political paradigms. And, and like I said, it's not, it's not the paradigm itself. It's how the paradigm is executed. Um, let's wade into a, a little bit of a, a, of a controversy here. And that is, um, you alluded to this earlier, Leo. On page 11 and 12, you wrote, This nuanced understanding of the Spartan code of conduct is a far cry from the egotistical and macho Sparta pop culture, or indeed, from the type of Stoic philosophy that gets promoted by, quote, experts on social media, life hacking blogs, and in mainstream newspapers. While not all bad, many articles that promote Stoicism today are written by people who mistake business acumen for virtue. Stoicism is a big tent that caters to all walks of life, but people who are only interested in themselves and refuse to engage in anything that might perturb their peace are not pursuing Stoicism they are pursuing Epicureanism. In your notes on that passage, you refer to, uh, quote, an outrageously superficial understanding of Stoicism, end quote, and um, on something that you call Silicon Valley Stoicism, which you alluded to earlier. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, you know what? I'll I'll start um, on the first part of that passage about Sparta, because that's particularly close to my heart, right? Um, my father and I. And I, first, let me just go on record saying I love all these movies. I love all these stories, right? My father and I watch like three hundred at least twice a year to stay fresh, right? But, but that being said, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so uh, just in case, just in case Xerxes attacks, it's right there on the wall, ready, right? But, but I. I this is a very one-sided view, right? I mean, if we look at like some of the Stoics that were involved in in um, rebuilding Hellenistic Sparta, reforming Hellenistic Sparta, it was about moral cosmopolitanism. It was about uh, a political cosmopolitanism. It wasn't about being the best, or I should say, about um, making Spartans the Spartans that they have um, the best necessarily. It was about letting the best people be Spartans, right? And I think that's so that was that's so fundamentally stoic. It's that, to that to, they would have rather have a good foreigner than a bad Spartan. Uh, so I'll just say on I'll just uh, finish finish that with Sparta because I don't want to you know I don't uh, sidetrack us too much. But it goes with what we know about Stoicism and what Kai and I tried to emphasize about Stoicism um, that so often it gets hijacked, right? And the same way Sparta gets hijacked, as I guess it's the 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 west versus the east right which the the, the spartans would have gone like what <laughs> right um in the same way that the, the people who hijack stoicism that yes only men can be virtuous and you have to be a stoic you must uh, never uh never c hold a puppy right i mean this is just wrong right this is this is not what stoicism was about and we try to emphasize that right is that, kai, is that what, you, what you think too kai 
Yeah, I, I think I think the fact we have to say is your father made that shield, right? We have to. That's right. We have to say that. Yeah, if we're going to feed the story that the shield, now we have to say that it's based on your historical heritage. Yes, the Spartans do get hijacked because they don't. Nobody goes as far as the Spartans would say. What is good for Sparta is good for the Spartan, right? The whole thing about being a strong warrior, male or female, was that you you knew who you were. And you stood for the tribe. You literally locked in. 300 captures this really well. And he said, well, I want to be a Spartan warrior. And he said, you can't because you can't lock the shield in. It wasn't because anything to do with the moral like, To protect your brother, you need to be able to stand with him elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, ankle to ankle. And you can't do that. And people that gets lost is like, no, I need to be, I need to do push-ups and be individualistic. And I need to jump on the career ladder and squash people and be indifferent to their suffering, right? That's, that's not a Spartan message, because if a Spartan soldier went off and, you know, ran off without his shield, for example, they would say, well, what are you doing? You've endangered the lives of your fellow soldiers. If he went without a helmet, you only damage your own head, right? It's for, it's for the many, not for just you. So the stoic like, theorist goes there and says, OK, this is the Spartan spirit that we want to, you know, re-envision and re-establish. So people say, oh, you know, uh, Stoicism has nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with policy. It's like, it's not, it's political, but it's not left or right. And we know that because Theorist goes to look at Spira and says to King Cleomenes and possibly his wife, when I mean, she may not have been in the room, but, you know, what do we want to do to restore the, the Spartan spirit, to put the cloak back on the back, back on the shoulders of the young men? What do we want? We need land reforms. We need economic reforms. We need political reforms. No one talks about that connection. That, to me, is a very powerful connection between Stoicism and Sparta, which we do talk about in Chapter 7 of Being Better. Nobody else talks about that. I, well, there's, there's academic books, so I, I lie. There are academic books um, that do that. But in the contemporary space, it's either not mentioned or completely lost or something completely different. And then, then people then say, see, it's all this sort of being strong and being being selfish. Selfishness is not a concept in Stoicism, right? For example. So that's what we're trying to point out, that it, we, our body does not belong to us as, uh, if we are Stoics. It does not belong to us because it belongs to the Cosmopolis in the same way that as the Spartan, your body belonged to Sparta. And that is, I think in a nutshell, really covers the concept of being better, why we wrote it, actually. Right. Uh, to add to um, what Kai is saying, um, so often, you know, for, if we're going to make a Stoic Spartan connection, so often people think of Sparta oh, and think, oh, they must have trained, uh, trained fencing all the time. They must have trained like ancient MMA, Pankration, all the time. And we just have no evidence of that, right? I mean, there were societies that were just or even more warlike. I mean, you could go join, you know, the Huns or the, uh, the, the Celts or the Mongols, which are every bit as, like we say in the book, every bit as ferocious, right? But the point about Sp the, the Spartans were to make you a good citizen. That was a whole training of, that was our whole, their their the way that they taught from childhood to, to to be good citizens. So what did this mean? Um, it's, instead of training fencing or you know a sh a shooting uh, or throwing throwing a javelin at, at the at at, um, at the target, what was important according to Spartan poetry, the, the the scribes that we have? Well, can you stand in the front rank with your shield in front of you? Can you see your own life as your enemy for the good of the whole? 
right? Can you, and, and what was important, can you march 20 miles with all your, with, with, with uh, and stand there at the end of it with your helmet and 70 pounds of gear on while the enemy charges at you, right? And, and not throw down your shield and run like crazy in the opposite direction, right? Uh, can you do that? That's what makes you a good Spartan. Not so much can you, uh, you know, can you, can you throw a javelin or can you, can you fence really well? It's, un, it's unclear they, even, they ever even trained for this. What was important is how you, how disciplined you are. It's a discipline that, that was fundamental to Spartan training. And what also gets, uh, gets I think, so, uh, so perverted in understanding of, 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 of Sparta and, and also, you know, in, in the sense of how important Stoicism is, is the fact that the Spartans were, it's not that the Spartans were at a 10 in terms of toughness and everybody else was at a 1. The reason they were at a 10 is because everybody else was at a 9 or an 8, right? They, like the, the Corinthians were super tough. The Athenians fought against the Spartans for 27 years, all right? And just, in just that one war, the Peloponnesian War. So to say you lost the Spartans after 27 years is to say you were the second most badass military on the planet, right, at that time. So um, the, the whole point was not to be the best warrior necessarily. I, Although competition was a huge aspect of it, the whole but the whole point was to be well. How well, how disciplined you are? How well are you part of this whole? And I think Stoic, this is Stoic through and through. And you see this in the ancient world and with Hellenistic Sparta and the, the reforms where uh, the Stoic Ferris goes down to Sparta. I mean, he takes a job, right? Let's be honest. He takes a job. He has to reform Sparta, but he he's always saying, "Oh yes, this is what the Spartans really meant. This is what the ancient Spartans really meant. This is what the like laws of Lycurgus really were." But what he's doing is he's looking at. Um, at at Sparta with these Stoic principles and calling them Spartan in some sense, right? It, in a way that it, as Americans, uh, we might do this as saying, well, what the founding fathers meant by this was a moral cosmopolitan world. Whether or not that would have been particularly true about Thomas Jefferson or any of the the, the founding fathers given their, their historical circumstances, right? Okay. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that a, a lack of general understanding, both of the Spartans and the Stoics, is what creates a lot of this, or I should say, allows a lot of these false myths to get perpetuated, false perceptions of, you know, Stoicism as stiff upper lip, uh, you know, suck it up buttercup type philosophy, and the Spartans as nothing more than a, a warrior culture. And by the way, uh, Gates of Fire was one of my favorite, favorite books of all time, uh, but that's another discussion. Um, right. In the same chapter, and this is completely changing gears, but in the same chapter, you two write about your avoidance of dairy products. And I, I found this very interesting for a couple of reasons, obviously, and without getting into the details of the underlying um, ethical issues you have with the production of dairy products. What I found interesting was the way that uh, you, you, you've come to the conclusion that for ethical reasons, you don't want to consume dairy products. Uh, however, you approach this in, a, in I think, a, a very positive way. And I'd love for the U.S. to talk about that. In particular, so, yeah, like we, when you're visiting friends and family is what I'm referring yeah, to. Yeah. So people think that stoicism is this kind of like all or nothing thing. And it is on one particular aspect, and that virtue is the only good, right? So there's not, but it doesn't apply to, so therefore you don't drink coffee, right? It, it, that will, because coffee is an indifferent, and we know that because it, we know what an indifferent is because it will always say it depends. 
right? So virtue, if coffee was always bad, it would be a vice, right? If it was always good, it would be a virtue. We know that because it will depend. So people want me to say often, I have a, that vegetarians are crazy or vegans are crazy because they don't drink milk and to drink milk is natural. It's like, okay. Or they want me to go the other way, like, oh my gosh, how dare you drink one drop of milk in your tea when your parents pour it in. So I, I, I use a really good example when I say, okay, imagine I eat this much meat. So this much meat is like, I'm just putting my finger and thumb together and saying that and then putting a circle and that tiny morsel of meat, imagine I eat that. And it makes my family happy. And on Tuesdays, we then have a vegetarian meal. Well, actually, I saved it, probably saved a cow's life, really, you know, because now six people are not eating meat as opposed to just me eating one piece that my father would have eaten anyway. Because right? that was the point that we make. Like, if I stick to my guns outside of virtue and vice, then what I do is I am rejecting them. And as my role dictates, in the same way that Marcus Aurelius had to say, you can come in, but you have to do it according to Roman norms, because that's what you're coming into. I also have a position in my family, as a son, as a brother, as an uncle. And to say to somebody who, out of the kindness of their heart, has cooked me a roast dinner, or put, accidentally put milk in my tea, oh my gosh, this is such a scandal, says something about my character. Firstly, it says I can't handle... A little bit of milk and i might not be able to i might have health reasons in which case i say well i've got health reasons or you know i wouldn't i'll drink one sip and i will not drink anymore the ability to say okay i will drink it because you did it out of love you did it out of consideration i i'll do it because the, i'm in your house it is your rules and i'm your son however you come to my house and you put tea you know milk in my tea I would tip it down the drain because I'm in my house. I'm like, why did you buy? Okay, but you bought milk. Okay, use it for yourself, but I don't want it because I'm in my home. And Stokes recognized that. That's why Leia was saying there were Stokes that did fight against the emperor, but there were equally Stokes at this very same time who didn't for their own reasons. They had, they had a different role and they probably felt that they could do the appropriate thing for them to do at the given moment was to do a different course of action, which is why we talk about Pat Tillman, for example, when a British spy... One tries to stop the, the Iraq war, the other one joins it. And they're both our heroes because it's not about the war. The war itself is indifferent. So for me, it's not about whether I eat meat. It's why I don't eat it and when I don't eat it and what role I'm occupying. So I think that gets lost because people are so adamant. Into, it's strange because it's, it's even worse, quote unquote, than religious communities. It's become so religious to say, I always do this. I always do that. And we've become very tribal. And the Stoics are like, no, the only tribe that you belong to is the one of reason. So you stick to your guns when it comes to what is reasonable. Other than that, do what is appropriate. I don't know, Leo, did I, did I do a good job? Yeah, you did a great job. I will just add, I'm just add my own anecdote from this weekend. Like I, I will visit my army buddies, right? And the, the thing about being in the army is you have friends that are so completely different from you, but because you were both in the situation together, you become brothers, right? So I'll go. And um, I went to a party at his house um, over the weekend in Orlando, and he, his wife had made, you know, made everything, for, they made uh, all this food for the party, but made something 
extra just for me, which I didn't ask her to do, but it was appreciated. And, you know, it was awesome. The next day, she gets up and she makes eggs for everybody. She's like, you eat eggs, right? And just serves me some eggs. And <laughs> I'm not going to just, you know, it's... I can't, I'm not just going to throw it up in the air and leave before it hits the floor. Like, I'm just like, yeah, you know, give me, give me whatever, whatever you're, is, you're, is you're eating, give me that, right? And, or if they, if, you know, if they come here and they buy milk and leave it in my fridge, if it's going to go in the trash or going to go in me, I'll eat it. Like, that's, that's, that's what's going to happen next. I'll put it in my coffee, whatever. Um, but again, like Kai said, it's really about the reason. I mean, eating, not eating, all these things are indifferent on the situation, you know, who you are, your role, uh, what the situation is. But always, uh, the Stoics are to say, right? Always with an eye towards the cosmopolis. And if for us, as we mentioned in the book, uh, without getting too far into the ethics of it, like you said, for us, if the cosmopolis means doing something to the best of your ability a certain way and having to set the example for doing that, then that's what we're going to do. And if, if, if nothing else constrains it, if nothing else, um, if there's no particular circumstances, and that's what we do on a regular basis. And we tried, uh, we tried, I think, uh, Kai and I, to bring that, to, to mention that in the book, like, look, it really depends on the circumstances. And we, the, I, I felt that the criticism we got, or the criticism that, that I've seen from this is, well, we don't have to agree with them on everything. Look, I, I hear you. Please tell me where I'm wrong because I would love to go back to eating steaks again, right? <laughs> like, tell me. Uh, but until you give me a reason argument, it's not enough for you to say, well, we don't have to agree with them on everything. Well, show me, show me where the reasoning goes. Show me where the taxi cab goes, and I'll get off with you. But until then, I have to go with what seems reasonable, right? As, uh, as Epictetus says about Chrysippus. Look, I'm afoot, right? Because I don't know the future, it's in my nature to stay clean. But if I know what is going to happen, then I got to get dirty. I even got to get amputated for the sake of the whole. But because I don't know the future, that is my, my nature. Because, because I, don't know the, I don't know everything, then we do some things and not others. And we just do, have to do what it seems most reasonable now. Show me a different way. Please show me. If you, you know, send me an email. Let me know what, what you got. But right now, was, I see no other way than, have to, and the, than the, what we're doing. And I, thought we, I, think we, I, I think we did a pretty good job of bringing it out in the book. That really, it also, it also at the bottom line, depends on the particular circumstances, right? Yeah, it's funny that we did we did get pushback on that. Sorry, I just wait. It's funny we got pushback. We it's funny because we got pushback on that, and we're like, but we just told you it depends. We're not telling you. Like in the book, we make it very clear that we shouldn't shouldn't tell you what to do because we have this saying in the English language, like you know, put yourself in my shoes. Why would I do that? Your feet are short, smaller than mine, so it's gonna hurt. Or why would I do that? I'm gonna slop around. So people got really upset about it. I'm like, but we didn't tell you not to eat meat. Right? We didn't tell you not to drink milk. Right. We just said in those circumstances, we would choose not to. And we gave our reasons. What are your reasons for telling me that I should eat meat? And they'll say things like it's natural. And I'll say things that there are many things that are natural. Uh, one that involves, you know, abusing, say, say a woman in a certain circumstance, we'll put it like that. Does that does that mean that we should do it? Does that make it, quote unquote, reasonable? Because it's obviously happened. And the other word, like, where it's natural, it's very strange to me. Because, like, well, if I've seen it happen, like, in the world, it seems pretty natural to me. So it was just very strange, Chris, that we get this. It's the same pushback you get when you say about the Stoic God. And then people go, I can't believe you believe in the Stoic God. I'm like, I'm not telling you to believe in the Stoic God. I believe in the Stoic God. And they're like, I can't believe that Seneca said whatever, you know, they think he said. I'm like, look, if you play a game of what we would call football and in the US you call soccer and you pick the ball up and run with it that's great but that's rugby you can't say that you can't change the nature of the you can't say you don't like the nature of the game and then do it your way and went Seneca said I could do that <laughs> and walks off with your ball in the hand and go well 
I'm playing rugby then. <laughs> just like, well, you are, but can you go over to the other pitch? So it's, it's the same thing that it's the same pushback that people were upset that we would talk about God and they were upset that we would talk about me. And I was like, how can you be so upset about something you don't agree with? And I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm just showing you how the Stoics would come to a, to a logical and reasoned response to a given, not even problem, a given circumstance. Yeah, and I, and I think that's what, what jumped out in, to me in, in reading the book was the fact that there wasn't this um, closed-minded uh, judgment of everybody that disagrees with you. And so, you know, this is not a, it's not a topic of virtue. Like, as we've said, there, there are virtuous people that drink milk and, and eat meat, and there are virtuous people that don't drink milk and don't eat meat. <clears throat> you can't make an argument. I don't think you can make an argument that you, uh, uh, absolutely, that you're a vicious person if you eat meat and drink milk. There might be circumstances under which the type of milk and meat that you're eating and how it's produced is uh, called into ethical question. But anyway, the lack of judgment, I think, is something that we in modern society just don't grasp anymore. I mean, we have to, everybody wants to carve everybody up. And if you're wrong, you're evil. You know, you disagree with me, you're evil. And I have to go out of my way to point that out to you. And so it was, I would say for me, it was refreshing when I read that in the book. And I went, wow, this is great. These guys have taken an ethical stance, but they realize that it's an ethical, ethical stance that some people, when they are in environments you know, like Socrates, they're not going to make a big deal about this is the way I live. I'm here. You're providing me with milk. And in, in the story that you told, uh, Leonidas, it's more the the company that you're in, the companionship that you're in, the relationships that you have at that moment that you're sitting at that table are more important than whether you're going to eat eggs or not, you know? And and that's something that I think, again, that gets, just gets lost in, in our uh, modern culture with the the divisiveness that we have. So anyway, I appreciated that about the book. Um, chapter four, which is uh, deals with the topic of, of luck. And on page 52, you wrote, the ancients took what we call luck to be divine providence. And therefore, they saw it as something that was destined, but could not, uh, but could not have been foreseen or changed. Now, today, when people talk about luck, they generally put it into one of two categories. It's either good luck or it's bad luck. It's good luck I won the lottery. It's bad luck, you know, I lost my job. Do What do you see as the distinction between today's concept of luck and what the Stoics called provenance? Now I'll throw that over to you in my typical Kai fashion. All right, well, here's the thing. Um, I want to. I want to be. I want to be careful because even the Stoics will, perhaps either as a rhetorical flourish or because of um, other other instances, um, wanted to differ. Would would sometimes use it interchangeably and and it, or at least it's translated um, as as luck or whatever else. For example, Epictetus will say like, uh, imagine that something uh, that uh, some tragedy uh, your your some tragedy has befallen you or whatever. Um, so you are unfortunate. Yes, I'm unfortunate. Uh, so you're miserable. No, that doesn't follow, right? So you can still accept that you're unfortunate, right? That's that you've you've had bad luck. You can still accept that. Um, when we 
what we try to do is uh, get away from the deep metaphysics of is providence luck in at least for this for this book right um but we can still accept that what we call luck well that's those are just circumstances i can call it bad luck but it doesn't follow what 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 doesn't follow from that is that um that it's that the world the universe is random doesn't follow from the fact that there's bad luck and it also doesn't follow that I have to be miserable I can still say yeah I've had bad luck but it doesn't follow from that that uh, makes us miserable um, or that we it defines who we are or our role in the world right I think also the sense it goes back to like Masonius very first like if you are given bad luck in the world right that you experience that okay. And what are you going? To, what are you going to do about that? That's the stomach question that follows. Is okay. How are you going to look at that? How is your attitude going to change in response to that? What action are you going to take? Because okay, if you're miserable about something that happened to you, well, then you're going to be miserable forever because that's happened. Right? <laughs> if I'm miserable because something happened to me, like let's say I'm miserable because my grandmother died, I'm going to be miserable to the day that I die because there's nothing I can do to change that fact. However, if I look at the situation and go. Providence hasn't took anything away from me that really matters. What Providence has given me, and this is why we quote you in the book, is an opportunity to be tested in the sense of my character. And it doesn't mean that we need a challenge, an external challenge. People go all the time, we need, you know, I need a challenge at work in order to show that I am flourishing. No. You can, in ease, you should be able to show that you have a, that you're capable of cultivating a good character. I'm not talking about internal challenges, but you don't need to have a, a crappy, crappy wife to, to, to say, look at me flourishing, even though my wife is terrible, which is also why I you know, push back against the, the, the book called Obstacle is the Way. It might be the way, but wisdom dictates that sometimes we step over it, jump over it, go left, go right, pick it up, remove it. <laughs> like, it doesn't follow from stoic uh, physics it, that we should take every obstacle as the way. It might be. And when it is, great. I'll pick it up and it's heavy and I'll walk with it. And when it's not, I'm sensible enough. I'm, I'm acting, you know, all, you know, looking at, you know, how what would be the wise, what would be the, what would the sage do? The sage is not going to carry an obstacle for the sake of it. He or she is going to go, okay. <laughs> I don't need that <laughs> and carry on. Like, I don't need to have a terrible wife. Maybe I should pick a good wife if I want to get married. I think that would be the wise thing to do. So that's, that's the kind of idea that I think, but you get through, get in your website and on every podcast I've ever listened to you speak, Chris, you make this crystal clear. I always have the option to, to, have, to be grateful to the universe for the opportunity to cultivate my character in difficulty and ease that for me is yeah really and, I, and I think that's the yeah that's that's the point and you know and the, the concept of the obstacle is the way I think what gets lost there is that uh, people think that hardship is the obstacle when in reality I think the Stokes would say hey I just hit the lottery and the average Stoke would said brother that's an obstacle you know because now you've got, it, it, yeah, it's a completely different set of challenges that you are now facing. You're now rich. And that doesn't mean that your life's going to be better or easier. In fact, it might be, you know, monumentally worse as a result of you hitting the lottery or coming into sudden wealth. And, but we, we interpret these things as 
good or bad. That was my point, rather than just there are events that occur that are opportunities for us to develop our character. And um, it is what it is. Uh, the um, chapter five is titled No Man is an Island. And you open with the argument against what you call the self-made man. Why do you think that's important in Stoicism? First of all, what is it? What is the concept of self-made man for you? And, and why do you think it's important that that, that is a, an issue for Stoicism? I mean, this was a direct critique against Silicon Valley, what we had called in Silicon Valley Stoicism in, I think it was 2018. Yeah. The idea that Stoicism is about making yourself resilient and quote-unquote as independent as physically possible. And when life is difficult, to look at, you know, to make sure that you're in a position to do everything in your power to achieve all the successes that you have. And, and of course, if anybody helps you, you obviously deserve that because you've worked really hard and it's all up to you. And of course, you're the smart person and the roads that get your employees to, to your your, fa your factory, you obviously built every single one of them. And the, the products that you, you, you produce, you obviously designed every single one of them and you made every, every box that they're containing and you drove every van. <laughs> it was kind of like looking at the interconnection that we have. The idea that, yes, of course, in stoicism, it is individual because we are, you know, we can only see the world from ourself. But we are very, very gravely mistaken if we believe that stoicism is a, merely about us and it was about looking at a situation of a, a quote-unquote self-made man or indeed woman who who rejects the idea that they are interdependent on other people because the moment that you realize this you understand again that you belong to the cosmopolis that you have a role to play I'm not saying that, I mean, there might be a, you know, quote unquote, self-made person in some sense. If they sit in a forest the whole of their lives, they never interact with anybody as an adult. Uh, they hunt their own food. They still have to thank Providence, but, you know, let's let's throw that out of the window for a minute. Let's be a monster. Right? I, I, I say, like, you know, I live in, I live in you know, a secluded area in the woods and I make everything myself and I skin my own rabbits and I make my own clothes and I stitch. Yeah, maybe, but that's not what they, when they mean that. It's the top entrepreneur. It's the wealthy guy at the top of the tree. And we were just reminding them that that wealthy entrepreneur might have done exactly the same thing, but he or she lives in Latin America and would be selling fruit at a dusty road because they didn't make the stock market. They didn't make the customer bank that they rely on. And we thought that was really important because Silicon Valley Stores just focuses on what can I do as Kai to maximize something different like wealth or professional promotion as opposed to how can I give myself headspace in order to contribute in a positive manner to the lives that my circles touch? I think uh, Panaitius is a very important character for this, right? Because this is someone that had to balance the, uh, the historical view of Stoicism as like, um, uh, well, what just happened in Hellenistic Sparta uh, just just a, a while ago with with um, making re reforms right making social and political and economic reforms and now you have these uh, elite Roman senators saying oh no we, we can't have that right um, well Panitius someone has to balance this like look I get 
who you are, but remember that you didn't get there by yourself, right? You come from a particular type of family. You have one surname and not another surname, right? You have three names. Not everybody's got three names like you got, right? So this is someone that, Panaitis, that one person be like, look, you still have to act from within it, within this one community, and you didn't get there by yourself. You're, uh, I don't want to say the, the, you know, I want to say you're, you're cog in a wheel, but you're, you're one, you're one part of the, of the cosmos. And I think Stoicism is that, that character, that, that person has to bridge, has to, has to play that role, right? And bridging this, uh, the, the, the elite of his world with, um, what that means for the, for the world, for the, for the cosmopolis as a whole, right? And not, a, not every Stoic could have done this. Panaitius could do this. Um, but you can't, you couldn't, you couldn't have imagined Cleanthes in this circle, right? In, in this, in, in this Scipionic circle of people who were, who were dealing with the, with the uh, Roman elite. Cleanthes wouldn't have made the cut, right? This brain damaged boxer with, right? Like this, that wouldn't have had an Im- immigrant that was carrying water at night. Had he Panaitius because of his social role, who his family was. Um, so I think Panaitius saying, look, I, it, one way to interpret Panaitius saying like, look, I'm not, I'm certainly not a self-made man, right? You're not a self-made man. None, nobody here is a self-made man. And we always have to have an, an eye towards uh, how we got here and what that means for our role in the world, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, that is a good segue into the next question, because uh, I wanted to talk about uh, chapter seven and uh, spherus, spherus, Some, and the idea that only the educated are free. Uh, two things. First of all, I, I think this goes along with the first idea of the self-made man, because there is a concept, at least in America, and I think it's largely in the West, that only the, you know, quote, educated um, are, are, are free, can live good lives and so forth. And that, that definition of educated is something quite different than what we're talking about here. But when I read chapter seven and the story of Spheris, uh, I, I honestly, I'd never heard of him before. I, I, now maybe I've come across the name in, in, re, in Stoic reading and just skipped over it because, you know, he's, he's not a commonly talked about individual, but uh, incredible story, and I can see why with Leonidas's interest in, in Sparta, he became a, a central character in the book, but great story. But my question is, what does it mean to be an educated person in the sense that you're allowed to be free uh, by, as a byproduct of that education from a Stoic perspective? Go ahead, Kai. Take this one and I'll balance off you if you can. Yeah. So when we say educated, we don't mean you have a nice piece of PhD toilet paper slash certificate that you can can put on you know your credentials on Twitter and look at my PhD, right? In fact, I just read today that if you need to write PhD on your Twitter handle, it's like the guy who goes into a date and puts a sock in his trousers just before, just to make sure everything's okay. I thought that was quite telling, really. Um, so we don't mean you need to be academically sitting in, in a classroom all day and have a PhD. In fact, some of the least educated people I've ever met have PhDs. Uh, that's probably because of the circles I you know, run around in. So what, what does it mean by educated? A person who is committed to living a life of reason. You can be a you can be a road sweeper. You can be a chef. You can be a waiter. You can be uh, you can be enslaved in some sense, and your commitment is to learn what the universe is telling you, and to respond accordingly. 
Everybody who's capable of reason. So I, you know, I've, Leigh and I have argued as Cleanthes and Crocodilus have. I don't think a drunk, me personally, I don't think a drunk person at that very moment can listen to what the Logos is saying to them. Although, again, the, I don't know what Leo thinks exactly because we're still fighting this out. So I would say, for example, a very drunk human being can no longer do that. In that moment, to a different they are spirit. not able... <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a brilliant. That's a brilliant stroke. That is, I like that. And so, we're not saying that you need to be educated in a sort of formal way. But the idea that you recognise that the physical universe, which in the in stoicism everything is physical, there's nothing immaterial, is an educator through the your experience with the universe from the age of depending on which stroke you want to listen to, seven or 14, seven and fourteen. Somewhere along that, that point, you can say, what is, what is, what is being said? So we talked about spherus uh, hearing the logos or feeling, you know, having a sense of the presence of the logos. And this is why, to me, the belief in the logos, the story of God is so, divine reason, is so critical. Because there are times where you just go, well, the best thing for Kai per se would be to, let's for sake of, get really annoyed with someone because they're just winding me up. But a Stoic would say, the minute you give over your sense of reason, again, a person, Stoics would, this is not an argument that the Stoics have any time for. Oh, there's, for example, there's a book called The Case for Rage. For the Stoics, there is no case for rage. The minute you are enraged, you have no ability to reason. You are no longer educated in that sense. You cannot use the education that you may have to make a decision. So that's what we mean, the ability to look around you or feel around you, you can be blind, so you don't physically have to see, but to, to be in that experience and say, what is what is the Logos telling me? So it's not intuition, like in the sense that we understand it, but I guess it might be easier to say some sense of going, what is correct, what is incorrect? And I think when you do a Lawrence Becker and you say, you can find out what's correct based on human values, I argue human values have called climate breakdown. Not every human values, but about 186 companies of, of human values have caused climate breakdown. So that's not a very good determin- uh, indicator of what is moral. But to look at the universe, for example, in that case and go, well, when I was a kid, I remember it getting really cold and snowing. Now it doesn't snow as much. What is happening? And being able to say, I can reasonably deduce from what I'm seeing, what I'm sensing, that something is awry. And why is that awry? And you don't need a PhD in climate science to work that out. And that's what the Stoics are very uh, clear on. That everybody, I I wouldn't say absolutely everybody, because there are, for example, I've made the argument, if you have bipolar and you're, in a, and you're currently in an episode, at that moment, you can't see reason because you can't distinguish who you are. Right, but if you can get medication, for example, and you are, or you are in a moment where you're not in an episode, you're not in a depressive mania or a euphoric mania, then you can also have that sense of reason and to say, what does it mean? It means the ability to know what is what is appropriate and inappropriate, perhaps not wise, and because that's a very sort of sage-like sense, but to know what's appropriate and to do it. To, to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to contribute. And I'm going to do this because this is my role. This is where my geographical location, this is my skill set. And even the Stoics would say preference. Your preferences are important in Stoics. They're not the be and end all, but they are significant, all things being equal. Leo, do you want to add to that? Uh, well, first, let me let me 
give what I think is an ancient example. I'll give a, a modern example where where this applies. Um, there were Stoics that, as we know, were enslaved, right? So you can imagine these Stoics, and I'm sure there must have been more than the, the the famous example, but watching like their own masters who were not Stoics having to like. Uh, you know, bow down to every little whim of their own master, whether it be a lover or Nero or or whoever's in their social circle. And you can imagine uh, the a Stoic slave saying, "Well, I'm a slave by circumstance, but you're a slave to your own stupidity, right? So who's the real slave here, right? But uh, so we can take this example and we'll see. Okay, well, who is the educated person here? Not the person that was uh, that has had all these tutors from the time they were they were seven years old or whatever. It's the person who's learned how to follow reason and understand what is in their control and what is not in their control. Um, the modern example, without trying to flatter you too much, Chris, is you, right? You can, you've held your, your, your weight and have been right against intellectuals with PhDs. And it turns out that um, even though you haven't gotten credit for it, and even though like it, 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 it didn't work, it didn't work out the way we would have liked it to work out, you were right. And so there's a sense in which you have to say, okay. Um, the, in this sense, in the sense of following reason, a PhD doesn't matter. And it's hard. It's hard for me to say that because I just got mine, right? I, I would love to put P, PhD on my, I don't know, on a, on a Tinder profile, right? PhD, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it, but it doesn't matter. What my, what matters is, are you following nature? And 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 you you mentioned you mentioned Spheros on this one. I think this is particularly important. There's a, there's one anecdote about him where he's at a banquet. Right, he's at a banquet and he's like, oh, this famous philosopher Spheros, right, for whatever reason, and he gets tested. The, the you know, Ptolemy, King Ptolemy, puts out a, a fruit in front of him, and it's wax, and Spheros reaches for it. Just then, he had been giving a lecture about how the wise person would never assent to a false impression, and he gets a mouthful of wax, and Ptolemy's like, ha, you see? Well, if it would have been me, I'd have been like, yeah, I'm no sage. I eat, I get, you know, I eat wax fruit all the time by accident, or I, or the analogy, or or or, or you know, any analogy, any reasonable fact simile thereof of whatever a mouthful of wax is. But he didn't say that. He, you know, made, made an epistemological point about it. He said, yeah, look, what is reasonable do, to do, it doesn't mean you're always going to be right. It's, it's understanding what is reasonable to do at this moment. Like a recycling, right? Um, when, I found out, when I found out what happened, what happens with recycling a couple years, I'm not saying this is still true, this is not my field, I'll leave this to Kai, but when I found out that for so much of the stuff, they were just burning in a third, you know, in a developing country. Anyways, the point was, well, what am I, what am I bothering, putting, you know, plastic here, glass here, or whatever? If they're just going to burn it anyways, like, so I think what what Sparrow's point would have been here is like, look, you go with what, uh, in a sort of virtue epistemology, with what is reasonable at that moment. At time, you know, minus one, it would have been reasonable to recycle. Time plus one, you say, well, let them deal with it. The ones making the trash in the first place, and they're putting on me having to sort out my trash, or they're just going to burn it anyways, right? So um, just because something is appropriate to do, well, doesn't mean you would do the same thing if everything, if you had all the information. But that's the world we work with. Uh, Chrysippus knew it. Spheris knew it when he bit the wax fruit, right? Uh, and I think that, um, you know, as a modern example, I kind of learned this from you, Chris. Yeah, I, I do oh, think I actually, that. Chris, you're a really good example because for as luck would have it, as circumstances would have it, you happen to be you know, a police officer and involved in traffic incidents. And for some reason, that disqualified you from being able to read. I have no idea why, why the US would put a police officer who couldn't read in charge of the traffic 
I mean, really, one of one of the key jobs is to make sure people's licenses are correct and they have the right paperwork. So, apparently, you were unable to read what everybody else in the in the, in the scholarly world was reading and pointing out with a with a with a highlighter pen, for example, the amount of times that the word God was mentioned, the right times that the divinity was mentioned, and you were saying it because it was there. It was unreasonable to suggest that it wasn't there. It was a trick, you know, a trick of the mind, but that's exactly what happened. It became this craziness of, I'm a scholar, I have a PhD, you must be wrong. And you were like, are we reading the same book? Because I'm not, I didn't write this. Tony, you know, Tony Long wrote this, or Epictetus wrote this, or Seneca wrote this. Are we reading the same book? And reason would tell you, that the answer was no, because they weren't reading the book, <laughs> because they can't be reading the same book, because if they had been reading the book that you were reading, with eyes open instead of a black marker pen to cross it out, they would have come to the only logical, reasonable conclusion that Stoicism has a god. Shock horror, shock horror. That there was just, there was no other, there was no other, you, how could you? I don't understand, I, I understand from a, from a non-Stoic point of view why there was this, this mechanism, because it, talk, it talks about academia, like you can't mention God, and if you do, you have to be on the, you know, the right. So if you're a left-wing academic, and how many left-wing academics are there in the humanities? Let's face it, <laughs> most a couple. of them. You couldn't say that there was a Stoic God. You couldn't say there was any God, because then you're not with your tribe. And the Stoics are very clear on this. You're with the, your tribe, as long, you know, in some sense, until that tribe deviates from reason. And when they do, the appropriate action is to tell your tribe, love you guys, you're wrong, <laughs> because blah, 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 blah. And like, it's the same, Leonidas would love to eat steak again. Uh, you know, the only smile that I miss, you know, in terms of meat, is, is a good steak, right? But I'm not going to be so superficial and go, well, well, it's my taste buds that matter. It's my tribe that matters. The truth that's in literally, literally in that case, black and white, that doesn't matter. What matters is my tribe, my social status and the credibility, the false sense of credibility that I've bought, built up on this particular aspect. That doesn't mean in every aspect, that particular one. So I think you're a really good example of, for some reason, like your occupation wasn't was an obstacle for them. To me, it never was because if you listen to the logos, or as Leonidas says, gets punched in the face by the logos, that does happen to me. It seems to happen to him. Um, like there was no alternative. What you were saying was absolutely 100% um, right. And I'm so glad that the tide has finally turned. So we've waited a long time for that tide to go. And it'll come back, you know, there'll be a new, I'm sure there'll be a whole new generation of people saying different things. But uh, I am really grateful that there is this, this tide change. There is a sea change where people are saying, Chris is right. And that doesn't, that doesn't make it nice. Again, we all wish that things were different. They weren't. So we go, okay. So what we're going to do about it? Wishing the sense of it, it would have been nice rather than oh I really wish that had happened. But I think you've been vindicated, and it, it's great to be on this you know fiftieth episode to say you were vindicated. If anybody's been following what's been going on, and not just in social media but in general, there's vindication, and that is that is a sweet taste. I would say I don't know about you, but I, I've enjoyed it. Well, I, you know I'm certainly happy that you know because in 2015 when this whole uh, fluff up started, you know and in, and in fairness it was a person with three PhDs against, you know, just a, a detective. Um, but uh, the irony was, is that I wasn't presenting Chris Fisher's ideas. I was quoting A.A. A. Long and David Sedley and Brad Inwood and Christopher Gill. 
and you know asking the person with three PhDs to provide me with the scholars that he had read that contradict what I said. And of course, you know that was at the point where the room went silent and the ad hominem attacks came against me. But I, I, I think in fairness to the people who got wrapped up in that, uh, it people didn't know what stoicism was. So you had someone who came along with three PhDs and instantly set themselves up as the de facto expert and told people, this is what stoicism is, and writes a book where he sits Epictetus down and has a, a talk with Epictetus about you know, what he needs to learn to come up to speed to modern times. You know, the, the people who followed that, um, and, and I don't use the word in, in, in negatively, but they were ignorant of stoicism. And I think what's happened since 2015 is people really are starting now to dig into the text and they're and they're and some in some cases reading the scholarship. And yeah, they're realizing, yeah, God and providence is there. You can't, you know, as uh, as most well, all of the credible scholars argue, you can't unwind this from stoicism and have no uh, repercussions to the the holistic philosophy. So um, I'm glad to see the tide changing. And to that extent, I'm thankful for, you know, people like the two of you who are in the world of academia and can, uh, can you know, can can speak from, you know, that perceived uh, uh, platform of credibility that I can't speak from, you know, people who listen to me, yeah, you know, I'm not a scholar, and I don't I don't intend to don't uh, pretend to be a scholar. But it's good to have people in academia like yourselves who are presenting stoicism as it really is to um, a general audience, you know, which unfortunately A.A. A. Long and and Christopher Gill and Brad Inwood and Sedley, they tend to present more to an academic uh, audience and which is escapes a lot of people. So thank you to you. Now, this, this is a good segue into the next uh, question, because in, in your chapter on living in accordance, uh, or live, uh, live according to nature, you wrote something that initially shocked me. Uh, and I asked you, I think, Kai, about it in a personal conversation a couple of weeks ago. And I understand, I think, better what you were attempting to communicate. Nevertheless, I think the passage is, is something that's easily misinterpreted. So I wanted to give the two of you a, a chance to kind of explain it. You wrote, if we prefer Zeno's and Chrysippus's more agnostic slash atheistic inclination, we might simply revel in the melodies of the forest as we try to distinguish one bird's song from another. That's from page 118. Now, clearly, using modern definitions, uh, neither uh, Zeno nor, nor uh, Chrysippus were atheists or agnostics. Um, I think I have an understanding of what you were trying to communicate, but I'd like you to... Uh, Say that yourself. You know, give us, give us, what is it you are trying to say with that passage? Because it's very nuanced, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that we should have done. I do think, having reflected on that since our conversation, uh, that we could have done a better job at explaining that sentence. And I'm glad we've been pulled up on that because that means that we're open to be challenged. Uh, we can look at the same book, and you can go, guys. <laughs> I think that I think that is that says something about the willingness to learn and and the Socratic dialogue. So I think what we should have said is that some aspects of what we might consider to be atheistic in, in leaning is what Zeno is more likely to be in line with Zeno's approach. In the sense that he didn't feel quite the need that Cleanthes did to write as a hint to Zeus or to have a more 
a more personalized relationship, such as the one that Epictetus appears to have with Zeus. So I think we were clumsy. I do think we were clumsy in that. I think it could have been slightly better. We'll make sure in subsequent writings that it is more explicit. It certainly wasn't trying to pacify people. Go, oh, so it's okay. So Zeno was an atheist. No, there was no argument in the ancient Stoic world about whether there was a god or or not. There just wasn't. the the the, the raging if the raging argument if if they're not quite the right term, but the, the 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 argument that would be like the one we're having today about is there a god or not is should we have public or private property, right? That was the one where you had disagreements. Should should we should we stand with the emperor? in the sense of what's good for Rome or not. It was not about, is there a God or is there not a God? That that was a given. But Seneca was clear on this. He said, if you feel the need to like maim yourself and bleed out your love for God, like literally, that, that that's not reasonable. That's not rational. And therefore, and if you have a God that needs to be pleased in such a way, then that is not the God that I know anything about. So, so it's not, you know, they're not saying it's a catch-all and, you know, do everything like do as the Romans do in every single way. Of course, you're Roman, appreciate your role, be involved in, say, Christmas. How many people said about Christmas and yet they do it, say, for family reasons? So I do think we were clumsy. I do think we could have said it better just to, to distinguish between what people in the say of the Abrahamic face kind of the kind of relationship they have with God, particularly in Christianity, because it's a much more personal God than, say, Allah of Islam and even the, the Jewish interpretation of God as opposed to more a, say, what we might call spiritual or pantheistic interpretation. So I do think it was clumsy. I do think we can do better, and I'm glad that you pulled it, pulled it up, because otherwise we are going to give people the false impression that what we're saying is that they have atheistic leaning in the sense that they did not believe in God, as opposed to their God was less personal than we might attribute to people who believe in God in the 20, 20th and 21st century, certainly. Would it be fair to say that you're addressing it from a, a matter of perspective? And by that, I mean uh, a Christian today, even, who looks at a Stoic might be inclined to consider them atheists or agnostics versus an atheist that looks at Stoics like me would consider me you know, a religious nut. So in, in other words, there's there's different ways if, if you're standing. So I, I suspect that at the time... Uh, Zeno was teaching, just like Socrates, you know, Socrates was accused of being an atheist, of denying the existence of the gods. There probably were people in ancient Greece who would have accused the Stoics of being agnostic or atheist because they weren't participating in the religious traditions of the the Greeks at the time. Uh, but clearly they weren't denying the existence of God in in, in any way but maybe uh, diminishing the common religious practices or ignoring the common religious practices of, of the time, which Zeno clearly did. If I, had to, if I had to advocate, if I had to be our own advocate for the passage in the book, which I, of course I, I completely agree with what Kai said and what you mentioned about it, but if I had to advocate for the book, I would say on its best reading, it doesn't really need a defense. Um, because we don't have to go all the way back to the ancients, like you were saying, Chris, to, to, to accuse the Stoics of atheism. I mean, in Justice Lipsius's world, they were accused of atheism, right? Which is why uh, we wrote about something about the Lipsius trap later on. But um, we, 
they, the Stoics, in some sense, were were accused of atheism, and even in their own day, if we are going to go back to the ancient world, in the, in, in, uh, the days of Athenodorus, working at, at the at the library, he's bowdlerizing. He's taking. He's trying to take chunks out of Zeno's Republic because it's offensive, including those things he said about marriage and about incest and about atheism. So there's a way to read, like you're saying, the way to read the Stoics as atheists, right? When I'm, I'm making the air quotes here, because it'd be like you said, what, what compared to what um, the zeitgeist of the ancient world was like they would have might have been seen as something like 80s and if on its on the best interpretation of the passage we could say something like this today right i mean if you if you talk to someone if someone says yes i i, I agree with the stoics on this one then it's to me it's, it seems like a lot like spinoza's pantheism which was also called atheism in his day right so so and he was um, banished from and, his and, religious group for that <laughs> Exactly, he was banished from, from a few religious groups for that. I mean, and don't feel bad for Spinoza. He's lying down in front of the synagogue so no one can get in. He's arguing with a rabbi outside, right? Don't feel bad for Spinoza, right? But also the Stoics conceded to common language in the sense like, okay, well, I get, we can use good and bad in this sense. We can use God in this sense. So um, there is also a way to read the Stoics as in they're more deist than we are, more theist than we would like as saying like, yes, they conceded, you know, the, sometimes they say gods, sometimes they say the gods, sometimes they say nature. So it's, to some extent, there's even some room for interpretation with what the Stoics are saying. Now, of course, I agree with both of you, we could have done a better job to exemplify this, but I mean, this is one page out of something you can write an entire PhD dissertation on, and people have, right? So I think uh, if we have to say, like, look, come read our book and learn more about Stoics, and we would like you to, to make you a better citizen of the world. To do that, well, it's up to you how much the Stoics persuade you on the Stoic God. That's up to each person how much they get persuaded. But if you're an atheist, right? If you're a, car, you know, card-holding atheist, and you say, "Look, I don't care about this. I don't. Uh, th there's no God, and that's that." Is that a reason to not read the Stoics? No, <laughs> right? Still, come read the Stoics. You're gonna get something out of it, no matter who you are. So Absolutely. I think that if that's, right, if that's what the book set out to do, and now I'm putting a little more intention than we probably gave it, but if that's what the book set out to do, then I think that we can, like the ancient Stoics did, and I, I want to count myself in their company, um, to uh, concede a little bit to common language in the sense of atheism or theism, right? And uh, I think on its on our best day, we can claim that we did that, right? <laughs> I think I think that, I mean. Yeah, so I, I don't think I, I just want to uh, kind of not defend Chris, but I, I think that because of the sensitivity around this area, I mean, like in the future when the sensitivity has died down and hopefully it will die down within the next 365 days and carry on that way, I think that we can say that. But I mean, you as you weren't quite involved as much as Chris and I were, I think that's where he's coming from, and I can see that. But saying that, that gives me a really good idea for our, you know, for our next chapter on the Stoic God, when we focus on that, to give that paragraph, to say, because I think what we've just said today will be useful. We'll, I'll certainly play it back and use it to, to make, be more explicit. Of course, as an academic, if somebody invites you to be more explicit, you, you're like, yes, I can make a sentence into a paragraph. This is like my day job. So I don't think as an academic, like, that's too much for a challenge. Uh, I, I don't, but I don't want it to be used because I know how it can be used to say even Kai and Leo don't. It goes back to my, they'll call, they'll do a Marcus Aurelius like us. They go, see, Leo and Kai didn't really mean that. What they actually meant was this, and it's the same thing they say when Marcus Aurelius says, "Is it atoms or providence?" They're like, therefore he doubts. 
No, he's just asking himself a rhetorical question. Maybe he's just clarifying. Like sometimes I go, you know, somebody might say, do I really love my kids? That doesn't mean you don't. You're just working out, how do I know that? And to what extent do I do that? So there are two readings for that line. And A.A. Long does say that it's more of a clarification of his belief as opposed to a rejection of his belief. Because if you read his journal, which wasn't published, so it's only for himself, it is clear from everywhere else in it, it's a clarification. That's Tony Long's reading. That's also my reading. Does that mean there might be a reading where he's having a mental, you know, he's having a moment of crisis? Maybe you just seen, seen one of his really good friends die. Like, if you think about what that man was looking, literally physically looking at, I think if I'd lost, you know, a really good friend in a battlefield that day, I might be like, is, it re is there really a God? That doesn't mean I don't believe in God. That just means that based on my experience and my misunderstanding, my misjudgment, right, as a human being who's reacting emotionally, understandably, would never want him to do anything different. That's one reading. But the reading that gets, gets really forced into is, therefore, Marcus really just didn't really believe in God or that wasn't important to him. Like, what? So if you ever say, do I really love my kids? Suddenly your kids are not important? It's just really, really strange. And I think that's happened because people have come into stoicism and said things like you'd never say in a church. Like, go, you go, I can imagine somebody, you know, doing if they did the same thing. They'd walk into a church, stand up at the pulpit and say, the priest is wrong. Or the vicar is wrong. Did you know that there's a guy on this wall? He never died on the cross. He he died swimming, right? That that would no one would take that person seriously. They'd be like, well, what scholarship have you done? What theology, theological college did you go to? No, 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 no. I just have I just haven't I just have the inclination that Jesus must have died swimming in the River Jordan. That's a much more reasonable thing to suggest. I I think because people have come into stoicism and gone. You know that the whole virtue is the only good is reliant on providence. Let's throw providence out. And people are like, because they, again, it speaks of, of the zeitgeist of the day and one's own ignorance that they come into stories via Facebook channels. There's nothing wrong with that. I really enjoy those Facebook channels. We've had some really cracking, great conversations. So I can understand the sensitivity around that. So again, I agree with Leonidas. On our best day, we can read it a certain way. You know, in a less generous or uncharitable way, you can read it in another way. I think you were just making the point clear to your audience so that we're on record that we never said, we don't ever want that line to be used to suggest that we think Zeno was an atheist. Because I can, I can see it now that people would use that as the same yeah, way they that, use Marcus Aurelius. And that is the, and that is the point. I don't, I don't think it's, uh, I think it's going way too far to, to argue that it's, you know, badly written. And I think I agree with Leonidas, it, it properly understood it is a, uh, it's a fair statement. The problem is, is that properly understood means people have some understanding of what we're talking about and the context is with, with, uh, in which it is said. And that's not always the case. And uh, this is a book that I definitely want to recommend. Uh, people know my stance. And so, you know, I, I wanted to get that clarified before I start getting the, you know, the messages, hey, why are you recommending a book that says that Zeno and, and Chrysippus were atheists? And yeah, you know, so I, we have it clarified. I think that's more than adequate. Um, and with that, I think uh, we are way over time here. So I think we'll go ahead and, and wrap up. I wanted to, to end uh, with uh, the final quote I have is appropriately the final passage from your book. And that reads, for Leo and me, herein lies the success of Stoicism, the ability to recognize that you alone have the power to seek and journey onto a life transformed, 
a life where success is not marked by riches or poverty, anonymity or fame, physical ability or disability, but by the decision to strive for eudaimonia, that is to say, for a life worth, for a life worthy of being lived, and for a world worth living in. Now, I love the passage. I think it uh, does a great job of summarizing the book, and I think it also explains why I would recommend this book to to anybody who is is uh, looking for, you know, an introduction to Stoicism that is not deeply theoretical. And by that I mean you. I think you guys have done a masterful job of providing just enough theory, just enough history, but. Uh, presenting it in a story-like fashion that, like you said, the, the mom can pick it up, the, you know, the, the, the janitor can pick it, anybody can pick this book up and get a good idea of what stoicism actually means as a lived philosophy, not just a, not just a philosophical theory. And to that extent, I think it also is a great book for another audience, and that is those people in modern times who are wondering is Stoicism really for me? Because I make the argument that Stoicism is not necessarily for everybody. I don't think it's the, you know, the only way to eudaimonia. It is a path to eudaimonia. And people will wonder, is this for me? And uh, it, it's it's short enough, it's easy enough read that I think if someone reads this book, by the end of the book, they're going to think, this is not for me, or this really is for me, and I'm interested in finding out more. So I, I strongly recommend the book. Um, and then I, uh, I want to ask, because I, I think you've alluded to it, uh, if you can say anything about the second book you guys are planning, um, when it's going to be out, are there any projections? Uh, there's no projections, but what we we are doing is really deep uh, diving into Stoic theory. It will be longer, that we can promise, because one of the, the, the funniest criticism was it was, it was too short. So we felt that it needed to be short at the time because I think that to say too much is not a great idea until you know what you're saying. And we thought we said what we just about what we needed to say. This one is a much deeper dive. It's the same sort, the same sort of sense of the stories, right? We're going to tell it through stories, but it's a much deeper dive in exactly what does the word, you know, the definition of courage. What does that mean from a story perspective? What does where does the circle of concern really come from? What is you know we're even going to talk a little bit about natural law, right? Which is not typically found in a in a in a trade book, so a book that would be you know typically mum proof. But we thought at this point that we that we there's only because there's no more principles, right? Because we're like there's not like a set of principles that you can keep coming out like you know you have 12, 12 laws, and then you have another twelve laws, and you find another twelve set of law, then you have another lot of laws, and the, you know. It, there's only the principles that we felt that were significant. But this is like, okay, so these were the principles that one should live by. What does that mean for our, our relationships? What does it mean for our relationship with ourselves? What does it mean for our relationship with our friends and family? What does that mean for the relationship we have with our local community? What does that mean for the relationship that we have with the world community? And what does that mean for the relationship we have with the environment? So we were very much interested in what does stoicism mean for me as a in sense of self, what does it mean in say my marriage life, or you know, what does it mean as a member, as a citizen of a of a nation? And that's the kind of book that we're writing. We can't say much more. We say quite a bit, but we can't say much more than that. Leigh, I don't know if you want to add anything there. No, I, I got to tell you, um, 
in some respects for me, it's more challenging but more rewarding because we've discussed all the Stoics, all the Stoics, the ancient Stoics that we had on our mind. Like, oh, look at all. Now it takes, I had to really go back into the literature, right? Really go back into the, the primary stuff. And I'm learning all kinds of interesting things about the Stoics without giving too much away because I know Kai, Kai will hate when I do this, but there was just the, the way the Stoics, like the, um, there was a, there's one who um, gave up Stoicism for hedonism after, after a certain, uh, after, after, you know, suffering a certain amount of pain. And one of his friends, another Stoic, said, I wish that instead of, that I had heard that, I wish I had heard that he had, he had been thrown off the Acropolis. Right? <laughs> so, so this is interesting. I mean, one way to take this is it's funny. It's a funny thing that he said. I take in a different, like, if you know my own dark humor or what I've, what I've learned from uh, Army Guys' dark humor is that there's a bit of truth in this, right? Like, yes, you make light of it, but there's also a type of pain where you would rather hear that your best friend died than he did X, right? And this is a kind of like pain I think this one stoic was feeling. It came out in kind of a funny way. So it's really not only I have to read, um, and share this with Kai and discuss it together. These, the, 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 these uh, esoteric parts of the primaries, but also have to get into these Stoics' heads about how they felt about each other and about their world. I think that's challenging, but I think it's going to be really rewarding. I hope that comes across as well as it's a, to the reader as well as it does to to Kai and to Kai and me, right? We will. We did. We, there's one character that we missed out on purpose in being better Seneca because we thought they would annoy him. So we, we thought he would be really irritated by that. Like he'd be like, "Wait a minute! I did. I did most of the writing. Like most of the canon is me." I'm like, "Yeah, you didn't make it." So we thought just for sort of an in joke, we always said that Seneca would never be included in being better because he was not a good example of being better. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we thought, but he is a really good example of what it means to look at yourself. The, the imperial family he was like having issues with and his response to communal issues because he did have that kind of role. So we, we thought we're safe Seneca for a good discussion, but being better wasn't one of it. So that was like an in-joke as well, which is now not an in-joke, but it was an in-joke for a couple of years. The Seneca was on purpose not included. Well, I, I look forward to it. Um, I look forward to interviewing you guys when that one goes out. I was on a bit of a sabbatical when this one was published. So coming to the game late, we're still in the same year. But, uh, and I'll be honest, I don't understand the criticism of your book being short because to me, that's one of the, the uh, values of the book as an introduction, or it's a book that I could give to somebody and say, hey, if you're interested in stoicism, you know, take a look at this. It's only, you know, what, 140, uh, 145 pages long in, in reading material. If I hand them, you know, three or 400 page book, I, I know what's probably going to happen with that. It's going to end up on a bookshelf. It's going to end up someplace. They're not going to read it, but they might be inclined to read something like this. So I think you guys took the right approach in keeping it short as a, uh, for the audience that you, you aimed at. And, and I appreciate that as someone uh, who will be you know, recommending the book to people because you know, I, I want them to read it. I don't just want them to go to go buy it. And by the way, I will mention it's also uh, available on in Kindle version and now on Audible. So if someone wants to listen to it either of those ways. Uh, gentlemen, this has been a real pleasure. I, uh, I look forward to more conversations with both of you and I look forward to your reading more of you as you uh, progress in the academic world and, you know, and, and hope that in time, we get more people in the academic community like yourselves who are willing to adopt stoicism as it really is and speak about stoicism as it really is. It's, it's, uh, it's heartwarming. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here, and I wish the two of you well. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.